Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. I'm happy to welcome back, after a many-year absence, it's Ian Hepburn, the writer and journalist and editor of the From the Sublime magazine. We're going to talk a lot about old-school British pop culture. We start with the recent passing of film and TV composer Laurie Johnson, who you may know best as the composer of the television show theme for The Avengers. He also did a lot of films, including Dr. Strangelove and a bunch of other television shows that we're going to talk about. That leads us into the chance to talk about not only uh, TV theme songs, but a lot of classic British TV shows from mainly the 60s and 70s, the, the ITC stuff like Jason King, which Larry Johnson did the theme of, and The Professionals and The Avengers, and Randall and Hopkirk and Department S., and so on and so on. Uh, if you know your 70s and 60s British character actors, you can bet that there's a lot of them that we're going to name drop on this episode. We also talk a lot about Doctor Who, the new revival with the return of Russell T. Davies as showrunner, the Tales of the TARDIS mini-episodes that you can find online that features many of the still-surviving cast from a lot of the classic episodes coming together, we talk about how the BBC is doing a good job in repackaging all of the Doctor Who content. You can, If you're British, you can now get it all on BBC iPlayer. And of course, in the United States, you can get it on Tubi. And the new shows are on Disney+. Plus. We talk also about a lot about physical media and old media and streaming services and their ups and downs. Um, not surprisingly, since we both publish magazines, uh, we are pro-physical media uh, old school style, and we talked about his magazine from the Sublime, which has just been out for the last couple of years. That he started um, issues zero, one, and two are out. They're working on issue three right now. If you want to order any of them from the Sublime website at fromthesublime.com, and you put in the code Winter Palace, you'll get a fifteen percent discount. So we thank you for that. There's a ton of stuff that we talked about on the show that I'm not mentioning here. There's also a bunch of Soccer talk, including uh, a lot about the MLS and the NASL, which I certainly wasn't expecting when we laid out the show. So it's a great show. It's another another long show. It's what happens when I haven't talked to some of these guys for eight or nine years on the pod. We just get rolling. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It seems a recent trend on the pod has been catching up with guests we have not had on the show for a while. Uh, I think when Xander was on, we said he hadn't been on in like seven or eight years. Well, I believe our guest today tops that. I believe it's been eight plus years. I had to look it up. It was December of 2015, I believe, was the last time he was on. So I'm happy to welcome back to talk about all sorts of... UK for, uh, UK pop culture, uh, and his new magazine. Don't want to f forget about that. I'm happy to welcome back Ian Hepburn. How's it going? 
those things work. Um, yeah, it's, it was when NXT was touring the UK. Not even NXT UK, but NXT was doing its tour. It was the last time I was on. So a lifetime ago in wrestling, that one. Not a lifetime in wrestling and two lifetimes at least for doctors, which we'll, we'll get to eventually. Yes. <laughs> which is fair because one of them I completely ignored. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to be careful what I say, obviously, because I attract the ire of certain fan bases, but I, I stopped watching partway through one of them. Um, nothing against them, everything against their showrunner. That's that's exactly. I mean, I said that when when they announced who was taking over, I said I, I'm pausing. It's funny while we were uh, before we started recording, we were talking about what has to happen when you pause your fandom, whether that's in popular culture or sports. And uh, I think probably like you, I said um, this is a line that I. I said, I don't want to cross this line. And this was before anything involving casting or direction of the show or messaging on the show or any of that stuff. So I was out even before then. And I was very good, and I don't know that I've watched any of those. It's like <laughs> I, I, like many people, I came back for the Christmas specials, and I guess we'll see how things are going forward. But we'll get to that uh, eventually. Although we're teasing about, um, we had been talking about trying to sort of figure out um, what would be a good thing to have you come on the pod to talk about, and it just so happened that last week um, composer Laurie Johnson died, and I said, "Hey, this is this is this would be a good uh, a good avenue to have you on, and then we'll talk about everything else," and you were sort of like. Yeah, I mean, there's other people that I know that might be better guests, and I was like, why well, don't necessarily just specifically talk about him per se, but then as an avenue to talk about like classic British TV. So, for people that don't know, Laurie Johnson was an English composer who was probably most famous for doing. Uh, some television theme songs, most notably the Avengers and the new Avengers. And then we'll get to some of the other stuff that uh, he did. But he he also, uh, I should mention, passed away at the age of 96. So yeah. he, he had just an amazing long career. But so I'll say, when I say his name to you, is do you think of anything else other than the Avengers theme? I do. It's, it's not just 96. He was just shy of his 97th birthday as well, which is incredible. Um, he he was an amazing talent, and, and particularly in the 60s, because he was doing stuff with, with KPM. He you know, was responsible for so many great bits of library music, and as a kind of library music nerd, a lot of his stuff has kind of stuck with me. But I think in the UK, there's a kind of weird split but globally, he's certainly known for the Avengers, I think, because of the success of it in the States at that point when he was doing the theme. Um, but in the UK, I think he's probably as well known, if not better known, for the theme tune to The Professionals. Which is funny because that's a show I had forgotten about. That mm-hmm. I was looking... It's It's... I don't... Like, your memory may be better at this than me, but, like, 
I was I said, okay, Laurie Johnson did the Avengers theme. So then I'm like, like I started looking to see what shows he did and did not do. And I was like kind of surprised because it seems like for a lot of that era, it's like I think of Lauren Johnson, Laurie Johnson and Edwin Ashley for mm-hmm. doing like a lot of, especially the sort of ITV shows that like I've become a big fan of in the last few years. We may have talked about this when you were on, or I may it may have been after last time we talked that like I sort of became, like, I did a deep dive on all these. But I was like, okay, so Laurie, it's like, I know he didn't do the, like, I know Ron Granger did the prisoner, and there's another person mentioned Ron Granger. It's like, and I know Edwin Ashley did, um, did Danger Man. But then I was like trying to think yeah. of, okay, well, who did, like, I know Laurie Johnson did not do Randall and Hopkirk. And then I'm like, okay, Laurie Johnson did not, I looked, so I went, okay, Department S. Laurie Johnson did not do Department S, but Laurie Johnson did Jason King. Jason King, yeah. Which is a great, that is, I think I I said this once, I said, that is like the best theme song for a game show that's not a game show. <laughs> like, it's so, yes. it's so like 70s game showy in a way that like, the professional theme is like sort of very, to me, it's very 70s cop show, like American cop show, or or sort of that, um, or maybe even like that sort of blaxploitation era that it's very, like it reminds me a lot of SWAT or like the theme from Shaft and the theme from Superfly. You know what I mean? It ha- it's very much that like 70s horn kind of what you'd expect to hear from the 70s. But yeah, the Jason yeah. King, but Jason King is such a great theme. And it's such, I mean, and it's such a a great show for people that don't know it. This <laughs> this will take a couple bits of explanation. So, we mentioned Department S. So, Department S was sort of like a 1960s X-Files kind of like it's it's a sort of similar format where it's you've got these three it's basically unsolved mysteries like weird there's a weird setup in the pre-title sequence and then they call in these guys this these guys from department s and they have to try and figure out what happened like there's an airplane that goes missing i think this may be the first episode i'm not sure um but it's called one of our aircraft is missing but so like this aircraft that just disappears for like two days or something and then, like, they finally find it, and, like, it's empty. It's like a Mary Celeste kind of thing. And they have to figure out why, but the the, the gimmick is because it's an international show, I guess probably designed for other markets, there's there's an American CIA agent, there's a, uh, a French Sûreté agent, and then there's a British CID agent. But the CID agent is also like a crime novelist. So it'd be like, you know, we've got James Bond and we've got like an American James Bond and a French James, uh, Lady James Bond. And then the British guy is, you know, um, Jessica Fletcher. Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> but, but, but Jason, but Jason King. So like, 
the American CAA guy is very straight-laced and is kind of like a super serious guy. The French lady is, you know, very competent but also very pretty and sort of like an Emma Peel type. And then Jay-Z King is like very 70s, like flared out collars. <laughs> he's got a perm. He's got he's got like a porn star mustache. And and it's Peter Weingard who they would eventually spin off into his own show called JC King, which I don't know if it's the theme of the whole, the entire series, but it's very meta and they're like they're trying to like adapt one of his books into being a TV show. And so some of the episodes get really meta, but it's also like a spy show at the same time or a cop show. And he's all, and the funny thing too is he's very kind of inept. Like he gets beaten up a lot. <laughs> and I was I was I was watching part of the episode and I'm thinking, "Oh, he's kind of Jim Rockford." You know, in that Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. He's I mean he's very much portrayed as a dandy. Um, and and, and anyone who knows anything about Peter Wingard will know that's the perfect casting for a role like that as well with his um, his own personal history. But it's it's that kind of seventies, um, late sixties, early seventies flamboyant, the kind of Mark Bolan um, kind of look to him, and uh, he is yeah. It, I never kind of pegged the kind of Jim Rockford thing, but I suppose that's the kind of the nearest British comparison. Yeah, he does get his head kicked in quite a lot. The, and of course, the other pop culture um, tie-in that people my age would know of a certain thing is when Chris Claremont and John Byrne were doing X-Men. Um, they when the when they did the Hellfire Club which was ripped off from the Avengers Hellfire Club episode because that was an, you know, that was, while that may have been partially an excuse to get Diana Rigg in that outfit, in the comics, <laughs> it, it was an excuse to put Jean Grey in that outfit and create Emma Frost, you know, and to this day. But yeah. he, they brought back Mastermind, but they made him look like him, but they named him Jason Weingard, like, <laughs> and and he looks like, and he's drawn exactly like Peter Weingard. So it's very because for a while that's why, if you listen to pods where we talk about the show, I will accidentally sometimes call him Jason Weingard, yeah. because in my head that's the name I remember because they just amalgamated the two together. He's when, also one of the, the main inspirations for Austin Powers. So folk who've never seen the show, if you can imagine a kind of TV version of Austin Powers is probably the best way of comparing him. Um, I know that, that Mike Myers, from, from his time sort of when he lived in the UK, and you know, he's sort of part British, um, had seen the show and he often cites it as the kind of, that's what he wanted to go for, is, is the kind of, the, the, the theme for, for the Austin Powers stuff was to do a sort of Jason King department S type thing. Well, it's the kind of thing that when you're well-versed in, like, what he's spoofing, it's like, it's one part Jason King, it's one part in, like, Flint, and then, like, yeah. oddly enough, like, one part Dr. Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine. 
You know, because that's basically the plot. The plot of that movie is like replacing, you know, it has female androids and they're replacing world leaders. It's like Dr. Goldfoot has that and, you know, my beloved yet maligned Casino Royale kind of has that too. (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, dear. (laughs) But so I was looking at some of the other stuff that Laurie Johnson had composed and there's some things that I had heard of. And then one thing I had completely forgotten about because it's, because it's not really a something talked about, even though it's like one of the all time classic movies. But like you said, so um, for things, for things in film, um, he did, it's funny too. He did a, a 1958 film called the Moonraker which, you know, does not have anything to do with James Bond. It's actually set in the Middle Ages or, you know, something like that. You know, it's a Middle Agey type of, like, sword and, or uh, costume drama. Yeah. Um, First Man on the Moon, Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter with, you know, 70s icon Carolyn Monroe. And then some other things, and some other TV stuff. But he also composed the music for Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And it's funny because you don't really think about the music in Doctor Strange Love other than you know the end when you get Yeah, we'll be again. When you get yeah. But you know when you go back and you listen to because it's funny because the main theme again if you haven't seen Doctor Strange Love um the the main title screen is it's kind of like a like a ballady love song. Because the beginning of Doctor Strange is just uh, bombers being refueled. Because there's like all these, it's like weird, like double entendre imagery of these planes basically like refueled. Because for people that don't remember, uh, we had bombers during the Cold War that never landed in case war broke out. So they were refueled in midair. So you, ha- you so you would have the bomber, and then another plane would come flying up next to it, and it would extend, you know, this tube or whatever, and that's how they refueled. They refueled in midair as they're flying. But so you can sort of see the hu- a the humor and b the double entendreness in that. So he's just kind of it's just kind of a lilty sort of like romantic theme, and then I guess maybe the most famous piece of music original music is like is bomb run which is one of those kind of things where you hear it and you don't necessarily remember where you hear it from but as you said Laurie Johnson did all of this studio music yeah for, that it's the kind of thing if you go on YouTube and you like search for like Laurie Johnson KPM there's all these tracks that sound so familiar because they're like they've been used in cartoons They've been used in TV commercials that you like you've heard for like 50 years, and it's kind of like, oh, that's where that's from. It's kind of like if, um, like some of the music from the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon is like weird stock jazz music that they used. So it's a kind of thing where you, if you go on and search around for it, you'll find it. It's like part of the of the their music library that's online, and you're like, oh, that's where that came from. The other funny thing that I thought 
when I was looking at Laurie Johnson's credits is he did a lot. Um, I guess this would be after the period we're talking about, maybe in the 70s and 80s. He did the music for a lot of the like Barbara Cartland adaptations. And one of them is called, oh, what's it called? It's like something, it's like, it's not the Count of Monte Cristo, but it's like the something of Monte it's Cristo. It's a, go, a ghost of Monte Cristo. Okay, a, oh, sorry, a ghost of Monte Carlo. Okay, okay, a ghost of Monte Carlo. But why is that funny? Because both Garrett Hunt and Joanna Lumley are in it. So two of the new Avengers are in it. Yeah. But, like, I don't know, like, if they have scenes together or whatever. I was just listening to the music. Or I was watching the credits on YouTube. And I'm, like, going, okay, I've heard of this person. I've heard of this person. And then I see Joanna Lumley. And I'm, like, oh, that's funny. And then, like, three people later, it's Gareth Hunt. And I'm, like, oh, it's really funny. <laughs> they have, like, this mini Avengers, the often forgotten Avengers uh, era. Although, I this is often a controversial opinion, but sometimes... Sometimes I like the new Avengers theme better than the classic Avengers theme. That's not heretical to say. Maybe because it's more it's more seventies yeah. and and like kind of funky. I was going to say it, it's an interesting evolution when you you follow and it, it, it and the professionals are followed directly afterwards. In fact, um, uh, Lewis Collins and um, uh, Martin Shaw were in an episode of the New Avengers together, basically playing Bodie and Doyle. Um, and that inspired Brian Clemens to sort of go, right, when I've, I've got this idea for the show and I know who I want, because these two on set hated each other. I mean, that's the chemistry I need for these two. I'd hold them in and, and, and got the, uh, the professionals made on the back of that. But the, there is a definite evolution, because he was a jazz musician and a jazz band leader. A lot of that early stuff is very kind of light jazz sounding you know the, the the kind of first big breakthrough um chart he had was the uh, a song called suku suku which is from an old tv series called top secret um not the um the, the film obviously the 80s film but the, it was a kind of early 60s kind of spy drama in the uk and if you listen to suku suku it the start of it I, I thought that it's very much like the start of avengers it's i thought kind of yeah, I thought the exact sort of drum thing. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing because I was looking at his credits and I was like, I don't remember this. And like, it starts and it's got like the the like drum roll thing that's from the beginning of the Avengers yeah. theme, and I'm like, oh yeah, which is funny because we're talking about all these themes, and I realized while listening to some of them that like I can actually like uh, I can actually probably tell now. If you play me like a certain like an era of UK theme, <laughs> I have a good chance of guessing which of like the three or four composers did it. Yeah. Like I've gotten to the point where I can sort of tell an Edwin Ashley song from a Laurie Johnson song from a Ron Granger song. Oddly, I mean I guess it's just a sign of like how much of that stuff I've watched now. And the, I guess <laughs> and I guess that and I guess that they all have their own sort of style. They do, but it's interesting. They, they kind of have a very sort of similar background. In, in a lot of them were band leaders, so you've obviously got you know you've, you've got Laurie, you've got Edwin Asa, you've got 
Rum Grader had been a, a, a band leader. You've got like, Ronnie Hazelhurst as well, who did a lot of great sitcom theme tunes, came again from that kind of background. So these guys were all working. And even folk who were like, doing stuff with like, the Radiophonic Workshop, John Baker was a jazz musician before he, he sort of delved into electronica. So you have this kind of background where they're all kind of coming from similar origins, where they've been like, big band leaders and, and live band uh, sort of arrangers and so on. And they come into the world of television either through sort of providing orchestration for stuff or in, in Laurie's case he was working with KPM and then because his stuff from KPM was getting used on TV went well why don't I just cut out the middleman here and I can get paid myself but you can hear a kind of evolution of the sound that comes particularly those 60s theme tunes that comes from 1950s kind of jazz and and, and um, kind of beat clubs and so on. That's the kind of music that was very much inspiring them and what they were creating as they, they came into it. So you end up with stuff like Suku Suku, which has got this beautiful bit of kind of syncopated um, uh, sort of orchestration at the start. And then you've got the Avengers has a very, very similar bit. And, you know, the, the new Avengers has this wonderful kind of wet kind of wah-wah guitar playing under it. And again, with the professionals, one of the most iconic bits of that is that kind of guitar sound to it. So he had a style that, that was very much kind of evolving as he went along. And you can see the kind of trends of this is what he was in the 60s when it was still quite jazz influenced. And also with the Avengers as well, it's worth remembering, he came into the Avengers on the back of the original theme tune, which was done by Johnny Dankworth, who was, again, you know, a legendary jazz musician in the UK and jazz composer. So they were, it was continuing the sort of the... The, what had been set before, but bringing it bigger and better and, and louder and kind of more upbeat than, than Dangworth's original theme. But it was continuing that same path of it being a sort of jazz-influenced, kind of beat club-influenced um, piece of music. And yeah, as you said, some of the stuff that he did, like, you know, his, his cinema stuff, he was doing things like Captain Kronos, which is basically a hammer knockoff. Um, you know, the stuff he did for Diagnosis Murder, which is, again, not the, the Dick Van Dyke series, but it's a Christopher Lee film. Um, he was doing these kind of, um, kind of very kind of jazzy, um, almost pastiche kind of jazz stuff at that point. And then as the 70s come along, it's funny you mentioned Shaft. It is a real kind of definite sort of step from jazz into funk as he goes along from that and into the, the kind of 70s music he's doing. Something I didn't realize, I'm looking at his Wikipedia biography, in that he was one of the people that founded Mark One Productions with Albert Fennel yeah. and Brian Clements, who made the New Avengers and the Professionals. So it wasn't even that he was, quote-unquote, just doing the music, that he was actually like part of the production company. Yeah, again, it was that kind of cutting out the middleman because with the Avengers, so much of that was the sound. You know, the the that theme tune is like it's very notable when they did the nineteen nineties film version, which we dare not speak of. Otherwise, they went back to the original the, that version of the theme and not the Dankworth theme or not the new Avengers theme or do a new one. They went to the Laurie Johnson one. Same with they did the 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 update of the professionals for Sky in the mid-2000s, I think it was, with Edward Woodward as uh, the sort of Cowley figure, they went straight back to that iconic theme tune to it. They did very little to change it because it's it's so distinctive and so kind of memorable. Well, it's funny. It's 
I mean, from sort of like an American perspective, from like genre, I don't know if it's necessarily genre stuff, but I mean, I would think that like the Avengers theme for like Americans of a certain age are like, is one of the most identifiable like British TV themes. It's like even like maybe for certain people, like maybe even more than Doctor Who, because, you know, if one sort of like, like a spy show and the other one's a sci-fi show. So depending on where your genre tastes fall, you know, I mean, admittedly, these are all these things that are being shown on PBS here for the longest time in the seventies and eighties that, cause I, cause I know I saw like some poll, I think like the BBC may have done of like, what are the most like iconic British TV themes? And like, I kind of figured that, Doctor Who would probably be number one, but I think it was it was in the top five. But I think Match of the Day might have actually been first, mm-hmm. which is I mean, which is sort of understandable. But it's, I guess he's like among some of those shows, it's kind of hard to separate because they they're all you know like fifty, sixty years old, and then you know the Match of the Day theme has pretty much been kind of the same you know since like nineteen seventy. So, oh, but way back for long, long before then. I mean, actually, they started. Uh, it's last year, I think, was the anniversary. So, I mean, it's about the same age as Doctor Who. It's, it's, it's six, I think, it's sixty years old. So, it has that same longevity, um, and the, it hasn't changed. I think the, the difference with the Avengers compared to Doctor Who in the states, I mean, and you can correct me in, sort of in terms of the timelines and stuff, but the Avengers was shown on. Network television in America wasn't it? it was the, when it came in in the the, the sort of the color package, the MPO package, it was done on ABC, I think. Yeah. And obviously, being PBS would be a little bit more kind of niche and down the 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 spectrum for folk tuning in compared to to one of the big the big three at the time. That's true. And then I remember, like the first time I saw the new Avengers was as a kid. But it was like it was on CBS, but like late night, like at like eleven thirty, twelve o'clock. I think I want to say like maybe on like a Friday night because they used to have dramas, like just basically like reruns after the news because you know nobody can nobody really competed against Johnny Carson. So you know i mean nightline didn't nightline didn't start until the hostage crisis so that was in the late 70s and then it lasted for you know decades or whatever but cbs always just had like a mishmash of these like original dramas kind of kind of more adult quote unquote like sort of like the things that like you eventually were seeing on usa like in the 90s and like so, sort of like silk stockings that kind of thing but, like, not nearly as racy in, like, the late 70s. But I remember seeing, like, an episode of the New Avengers when I was probably, I don't know, 8, 9, or 10. Like, on a late Friday night because, and it's the one, I don't remember the whole plot, but it's like, it is, <coughs> <coughs> but it's like yet another um, neo-Nazi Fourth Reich kind of, 
thing. <laughs> just because, just because, yeah, because you have that scene at the end of the episode where like they're all marching and Joanna Lumley is wearing like the German officer coat. Oh, that's when they're up at um, Illendon and Castle. Okay. Yeah, up in up in the Highlands. Yeah. Um, is that the one they're walking on the bridge, Whistling at the end? Yeah. They're you like, see, you see the clip of it in the titles as well, yeah. Yeah, they're all like, they're all, all three of them are like walking arm in arm. And she's got like the big, you know, German, German yes. long coat on. Yeah. Which again is, you know. It's a look. It, I was going to say, especially because it's, you know, 70s Joanna Lumley. So, uh, you know, <laughs> before she was on AbFab and sort of poking fun at, you know, I guess her image on a certain level is like she was the real deal. I mean, she was. Oh, God, she, yeah. I would say she's a certainly a worthy successor to to Diana Rigg. Not as great as, you know, especially because the show's only around for a season. But you know, she's definitely she's definitely one of the high points of that of that era of the New Avengers. But again, it's it's also weird because then there's three of them because you've kind of got you've got Mike Hunt to try and uh, I you know I guess he's sort of it's sort of like having the the brawny guy on Doctor Who that he's there to sort of do the fight scenes if you've got a doctor that can't do them like yeah. he he's a Gareth Hunt I should say by the way yeah well, it's it's he, you're just massively liable to him. no no. <laughs> It's one of those all words to put together, <laughs> right? Because yeah, it's Mike, it's Mike, it's Gareth Hunt and Mike Gambit. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, when you can conflate the two, it becomes a massive insult. True. Um, <laughs> but so. But yeah, he he was he was a kind of the the Harry Sullivan role. Uh, he was like, well, we're not sure if Pat McNee is up to doing the action sequences these days because you know he was he was older and he was a bit heavier and. Um, you know, a little bit more out of shape, and and you know, it was a sensible thing to do, bringing someone who can, you know, do the the fight sequences where needed. So we mentioned a bunch of these '60s shows that, like, I did not. I don't know if we've talked about this before. If we did, I apologize. But it's been nine years, so if you listened to it back then, congratulations, <laughs> yes. congratulations and thanks for being around for nine years. Um, but like a lot of these shows never came to the United States. So it wasn't until like this recent era where you can kind of find everything online, whether it's on YouTube or it's like there's so many of these like niche streaming channels. Now it's like, I don't know if it's available in the UK too, but there's like, there's a streaming service that we can get here called Acorn, which has a lot, which has a lot of sort of like the lesser known British stuff from like, I don't know if it goes all the way back, but certainly like the 70s and 80s, there's all these shows that like never made it here. Hmm. So uh, some of these may be on there, but then it's like I found – like a lot of these I found on YouTube. And like there's things I knew about. Like I had always known in theory about Randall and Hopkirk, but I don't know like if I'd ever seen one until like the last like five to ten years. Like I knew the premise. It's I'm, I'm surprised, and I, I say this off the top of my head is I'm surprised that kind of wasn't ripped off and made an American show, or 
maybe it was made off as an American show and like lasted and didn't make it past the pilots. Because <laughs> I mean, it's it was it was certainly talked about. It got I think it showed in the states as my partner and the ghost, so it didn't get billed as as Randall and Hopkirk deceased, but it, it was. Yeah, I mean, there was been talk about doing a US version of it for years, and it never came to anything. Um, perhaps luckily. Um, well, and then obviously it got the, the, the big 2000 remake with Vic and Bob, which, it, it's there. <laughs> you know? It's, what well, the funny thing to, for that show, it, I, and again, I think it's fine, but much like the original show, the allure is watching it and and sort of the same with the Avengers is seeing all these people who are guest stars who yeah. w- went on to be, especially when you've got all these ITV shows that, you know, it's like they're all made. It seems like they're all made by the same people. You know what I mean? It's like, they, well, they literally were, they were made by ITC and ITC had almost like a rep company approach to who was in charge of Dennis Spinner tending to be either the creator or script editor and a lot of them obviously Lou Grade was was cat was you know when he was putting together the production for these things and commissioning them he was going for the same people time and time again and the, the actors and directors who were being brought in particularly the directors they tended to have a kind of rep company approach where they would bring in the same actors for their production so you will see certain actors always show up and, and it, it span off to other things you know um I was going to say, you probably know the answer to this, and we if we may we may have discussed this or not. But I can you guess what my favorite example of that is on one of those shows? On what an ITC one? Yeah, an IT um, an IT show that's full of people who will go on to do other things, all in the same episode. Oh, there's a there's an Avengers one with um, it's got Brian Blessed and Donald Sutherland in it, which is absolutely wild. Okay, well this um, this this one's even better. There's an episode of Randall and Hopkirk. The if I tell you the plot, you may remember um, that they're either like one of them, like the maybe like the girl's grandmother. Or somebody, somebody that's loosely connected to one of the two of them, has suddenly become, as like devised this brilliant way of like winning at roulette or some kind of gambling thing. So they decide to go to Monte Carlo to sort of, you know. Oh yes. Okay. There's. Okay. So so this episode has the aforementioned Brian Blessed as a bad guy. It has Nicholas Courtney as a bad guy, and it has Roger Delgado as the Mater D in the Monte Carlo Casino, playing, I believe, uh, I believe, like playing someone I think who is Turkish. Yes. So you've got yeah. you've got Brian Blessed and like two of the most important people of the John Pertwee era of Doctor Who, all in this one episode <laughs> as guest stars. Yeah, it was it was a small pool that they tended to fish in at times. I mean, that's it's quite lovely because a lot, as you said, a lot of those folk you recognise from other things, and you sort of go a lot of kind of the nostalgia now for watching those is kind of oh it's him, oh it's her, 
um, which is quite a lovely. And because IATC had that approach where they were looking to do stuff with one eye on international distribution, like you said earlier about um, Department X, where you have that mix of an American, a French uh, person, and a, 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 a English person. That was kind of the formula they did with everything. So you had the champions, which was um, uh, an American secret agent, an English secret agent, and I can't remember what Alessandro Bastone. Uh, his character's meant to be, I think Swiss, but it's hard to tell because he's just basically playing English. Um, you know, you had things like Persuaders with Tony Curtis and Roger Moore, so you always had that kind of how can we get someone from the States in it so we can get some American network interest in it? How can we have someone from Britain? How can we have someone who can sell it to Europe? Because we know the Avengers was popular in Europe, so we'll try and cash in on that. Um, so that was always very much the formula they went to with those things. Uh, but it does mean that you end up with the same faces and formula every single time. But like you said, we also sort of get that with Doctor Who. And, you know, where we've had the great thing, you know, where, you know, we have Colin Baker in an ep- in a Peter Davison episode and then later becomes the Doctor himself. And I think we've had what Peter Capaldi was in an ep- a, a tenant episode and then he eventually became yeah. the, the, so even in sort of like well, there's this, a, there's a, the, the most egregious example of that I mean David David Maloney who, who directs a whole bunch of episodes in the classic series always cast Baron Horsfall in his stuff I mean it was it was a running joke uh, and then he's in um, The Mind Robber he's in Deadly Assassin he's in um Oh, so the one he pops up in as well. Uh, the War Games. Um, he's just, and, and it's not for the same character. Although there's, a, there's an argument, is the one in the War Games the same one as Deadly Assassin? But um, it's that thing of, and he would cast him in his, his Blade Seven episodes and stuff as well. It was just folk you trusted. You know, I need someone who can do this role. It's not a huge role, but I know he can come in, hit his lines, knows his marks. He's going to cause no fuss, and he's going to, you know, get on with the job. So that's what they were looking for. And it was because of a lot of them came from that repertory theatre background. They kind of went, oh, I know, X and Y are really good. I'll bring them in for a couple of weeks to do this job. And then they would move on and do something else. So you have this kind of, you, you, if you hire David Maloney, you know you're going to have Bernard Horsfall somewhere in the cast. If you hire X, you know you're going to have Y somewhere in the cast. So it becomes a kind of, um, almost a stock thing to watch out for. But it is lovely in, in its own way because it becomes a kind of a shorthand. You know that 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 that, that means that person's going to be in there. And it's usually because they're bloody good. I mean, Baron Horsfall's one of those actors who, you know, I never understood why he never had the kind of the big breakthrough that he deserved. He was a great character actor, working right up until... Um, when was the last thing I saw him in? Um... I think it's him in a, a virtual murder. He's in an episode of virtual murder, and he's absolutely the best thing in that. Um, and he just kind of pops up in everything. You know, he does a, a couple of Sherlock Holmes. He's, he's in um, he's in, in Joe the Crowd. He's in Gandhi. You know, he just keeps popping up all the time um, because he's just one of those guys who's a reliable, safe hands of character acting. The Three Avengers. There you go. It's in the Three Avengers episodes. Um, just sort of someone you can bring in, you know, he will do you a good job with minimum amount of fuss. And that's kind of what 
because of the time scale, the turnaround those shows had in the 60s and 70s when they were kind of churning them out really quickly. Um, that's what they were going for. It's like, who, who do we know who's really good? Well, he'll do. Bring him in again. The other one that I didn't know, and as far as I know, I never remember this show being on TV here growing up on PBS, at least where I live, is I never saw Dad's Army. Even though, you know, it's one of the biggest shows in the history of the BBC, but, like, I don't know that it... It's funny that it didn't cross over here because, I mean, God, we had Hogan's Heroes for five years and, and ran for syndicated and forever, so it's not like it's the subject matter. But I didn't realize until I, like, went through and started watching all the episodes of Dad's Army that little did I know that, like, one of the most famous guest stars in Dad's Army history, like, had been on, like, Doctor Who and the Avengers, and that's Philip Maydock. You know, playing the oh, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the U-boat commander in in that episode of Dad's Army, and I was like, oh, I know that guy. And again, I don't remember like it's possible watching all those episodes of Dad's Army. That like I don't remember a lot of hey, it's that guy the way I did with the, with the ITC shows. But it's funny now it, I've now like gone back and now that I've watched those, it's like seeing some of those guys in other stuff, like um, some of those Dad's Army guys, you know, are in all this, you know, 50s and 60s stuff, and then with other people that, what was it, was it, is it the Moonraker? That I was looking at the credits, and like, I think like both John Lemizier and Patrick Troughton are in that, I think there was like there was some weird there was something I was looking at the credits for, and I was like, "What a weird combination of like famous genre people to me that like I would have no idea they were in." Uh, let's see. Yep. Yeah, they're both in it along along with Marius Goring as well. And a lot of that is just because at the time they were just really good character actors. They were seeing, you know, Patrick Troughton in the 50s was, was one of the great kind of English character actors. Or um, or the kind and, of, and, you know. Yeah, or like or like now realizing that like William Hartnell's in The Mouse That Roared. Mm. You know, that like stuff that I remember, it's weird that like our video store in like the middle of nowhere country, like had like, a lot of these, like, really off-brand British comedies that you wouldn't have... Because I saw... I remember seeing a lot of, like, Ealing films when I was, like, a teenager just because the video store we went to happened to have the Lavender Hill Gang or um, or the lady... or the, the man in the white suit I remember seeing. And they had... They had the Mouse at Roared and I'm Alright Jack, which is... Which is funny because it's Blimey, like, that's an odd choice. <laughs> I don't, but I don't know if it's just because like it's like, hey, Peter Sellers is in this. Peter Sellers is a big star, you know. Even by the time that you know VHS started being a thing in the mid '80s, here it's like, well, we know he's the pink, you know, he's Inspector Clouseau. So I guess people just went back. I mean, but like not all of them, because I know there's some Peter Sellers films I like probably didn't see until I was in college, and you know we had like a niche art school film department kind of video store in town, you know, that probably made most of their money by 
stocking films that were on the syllabus from the film department because kids kids I'm so old that when I went to college for film class we actually showed up in the theater and we we watched screeners of actual films for class like we didn't even there were it was like the rare film where that like the department had on laserdisc but it was a kind of and I think they and a lot of them we had in the library but some of them we still rented like at the beginning of the year, they would, you know, it's like they would get the, like the professors had their syllabus and they would rent, you know, just for the week, you know, some some Bergman movie, like not one of the big Bergman movies or something, but like one of the smaller ones. But luckily, it's the kind of thing where if you happen to miss class one day or miss the screening, you could go to like one video store that was in downtown away from campus and get, oh, I could get a copy of Metropolis from this store. Or I could get a copy of Seventh Seal from this store to rent. But of course, then, you know, there's like a long waiting list because they knew what films were on syllabuses. And it'd be, I remember there was some, there was some, there was some Western, like some 50s Western that like I got put on the waiting list. I was like the sixth person on the waiting list. Because. (laughs) It's probably because it was the middle of winter and nobody wanted to trek all the way down to the auditorium and watch, you know, the searchers, you know, mm-hmm. in like a two-foot snowstorm or whatever. They're like, oh, I'll watch it on video. Because, like, it may have been something you could actually get on video. Those were the days. Yeah, very very much very much changed days now when everything's on demand. The idea of... Uh... Slipping into to, to hire something. As a sign of the times, I've just moved back to Glasgow from from Manchester. Just before I was leaving in Manchester, Blockbuster had opened up again, but as a nightclub and a bar, they'd bought the, the license to use the Blockbuster brand and created a fake video store. And it's what by go what's this? It's like I think they, they thought there was going to be like a faux nostalgia for it, and they they missed the generation completely that were interested. So the folk who would be going to it in the Northern Quarter were just like, "What's Blockbuster?" So they kind of it, that's how many generations removed now we are from from the days of of going out to hire your VCRs. But I mean, the only problem with streaming, I think we've talked about this on the show before, is like I'm now becoming one of the I, I I've always been pro physical media. But like I don't, I am now sort of angry at like being at the whim of the sh- of the streamers when they just decide to randomly change stuff. It's like, yeah. I mean, I was a big fan when they launched HBO Max because their HBO has such a huge has such a Warner Brothers has such a huge back catalog now. Because, I mean, not just like all the shows from HBO, but since it's Warner Brothers, which means all the Warner Brothers movies, all the Warner Brothers cartoons, all the Warner Brothers TV shows. You know, I mean, they have such a humongous library. Mm-hmm. And and the Turner Library, you know, so they have the MGM Library. And so they had like a great selection of stuff. And then they start slowly paring stuff away. And I don't know if it's if they've done it by now, but I know that they were going to remove, like, all of the Looney Tunes. And it's like, why? They, they've backed, they backed down from that. I actually wrote about this in the um, the, the most recent issue from the Sublime, but there's a... Um, they kind of backed down initially um, after folk kicked off about it. 
Um, but whether or not they, they maintain that stance and say, oh, we wouldn't do that, it's such an important part of our legacy, given the other stuff that they've done, um, you know, the number of, like we've seen the, the films that they have actually filmed or TV shows that have actually made and then just not shown and stuff that they've taken off the streamers early. Uh, and it's not just, it's not just um, you know, Warner Bros., Discovery that are responsible for this is a lot of other companies. Disney did it. Um, there was a film that came out uh, last summer. Um, it was a really young adult film uh, about uh, kids on the moon, and it was on you know, a moon colony. And I'd never heard of it, and it, it, it sounded great. And it was on Disney Plus for approximately six days before it was withdrawn to save and, and turned into a tax write-off. And it's like films do not have time to to find an audience now because of that kind of approach. And then if you start taking that, that kind of um, approach to archival material as well, you, you're effectively limiting what history is available. If you're a custodian of film and television history, you know, even on a commercial basis, and you start, actively withdrawing stuff not in the kind of the disney way of doing it to to you know artificially increase interest in something like they used to do with like tron and, and stuff when they'd vault stuff for a well, few years and i mean bring it back. i mean famously disney i don't know if this was like the actual number but i remember disney used disney had like a formula for re-releasing their animated the classic animated cartoons because they're like every seven years or like every 12 years because mm-hmm. there's always a new generation of kids that want to see <coughs> that want to see Bambi or Snow White or Cinderella. Yeah. So yeah, so you can just, you can't I mean, because there was no videotape yet and they didn't really, sh- and you know, and they occasionally showed stuff like on the wide world of Disney, but rarely. So well, yes, yeah, and, and even even with their video release thing, they had a thing of vaulting stuff for a little while, and it it became a kind of a way of artificially creating an audience for it. People would would demand it, and then eventually he'd re-release it as a special edition or whatever, and make more more coin off of it. But Warner's, you know, through the the current approach, aren't doing that. They are just actively removing and deleting stuff from being available in any platform, and that is. That is a kind of cultural vandalism in some ways, because it's it's the equivalent in, you know, as, as a, a fan of Doctor Who and, and someone of you know British television in general, not it comes to a wider point which I'll mention about physical media as well in a sec. But there was a big spell in the seventies in, in British television where a lot of stuff got jumped and has not been recovered, um, and it's either in private hands through dubious means or it has become landfill propping up a motorway flyover somewhere and because of that we have lost vast swathes of British film and television history and that was a choice made at the time when there wasn't seen as any commercial value to maintaining those archives there wasn't repeats, there wasn't a platform for distribution in the same way. Now when you have those platforms and an audience that is willing to pay for it to not only remove stuff, but to sort of do so on an almost permanent basis and actively deny people access to it. That is the modern equivalent of that junking. It's not 
deleting the existence of those things. They still exist somewhere, but there is no physical way of reaching them. And that is denying a generation the ability to consume them and enjoy them and learn from them and develop them and be inspired by them. Well, One we of have... the side effects of that we've, we've had here in the UK, I don't know how much you, this has kind of gone across the Atlantic. There was a distribution company in the UK called Network who um, were responsible for a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. So things like the Avengers on DVD and Blu-ray and the Prisoner, Quatermass, which we talked about last time I was on, um, you know, and, and lots of kind of more obscure bits of British um, film, film and television and comedy from the 60s and 70s. They were doing amazing stuff, not just in terms of archival um, production, going and finding this stuff and, and, and making it available. They were doing clean-up jobs. They were commissioning the likes of, you know, Andrew Pixley and Frank Collins and, and you know, great TV historians in the UK to sort of contribute to the making of information guides and so on. And then sadly last year, with virtually no notice, they they went bust. And there is no one who can step into that that space that has either the passion for the content or the distribution methods to make that content available, which means there is now a vast chunk again of British archival film and television that is no longer readily accessible to audiences who want to get it. So if you want to go and see The Goodies, for instance, um, to, to sort of cite a great British comedy example, which was bloody hard to get hold of until Network managed to get the rights and do something with it. You can't do it now. It's not, you know, I, I don't think there's much of it on BritBox. There's none of it on iPlayer. There's none of it on ITVX. It's impossible to watch, uh, you know, in an, in an easy manner. And this is the, the thing we've lost, as you said about physical media. We're absolutely becoming a culture of streaming. We've lost that ability to retain access when other people dictate what our access levels will be. So we now don't have a way of getting to see these things comfortably. And it means that it's not just here. It means that those license agreements get snookered for the state. So things like the recently restored Avengers Blu-ray box set, I mean, I presume that won't make it across the Atlantic. But they've done an amazing thing, which may have ended up being one of the reasons they went bust is commercial suicide. Well, they had managed to restore and bring together about 3,000 episodes of Crossroads, uh, which for people who don't know in the States is a, a, a very schlocky, British soap opera. Russell T. Davies, obviously showrunner of Doctor Who, wrote an amazing uh, drama for ITV about the making of it, starring Helena Bonham Carter last year. Um, and it is, is a, a kind of notoriously awful soap opera. It was cheap and schlocky and terrible, um, but it had this incredible cult appeal and network managed to get the rights to and restore a huge chunk of of the archive of that and release it commercially as a box set and people were buying it it, it had an audience no one can do no one's going to do that now no one's going to release stuff like that so we lose this kind of stuff and when you've got warner's going not just for something like crossroads which is you know a bit obscure but warner's going ah you know what looney tunes nah no one's interested in that Batgirl, ah, no one's interested in that. 
You know, you start. What, what's the next bit? If, it, if it's about money, do they go Sopranos? Well, it's a bit expensive and it's a bit old. No one's going to be bothered anymore. You know, do we see the Sopranos or The Wire or something get shelved? Well, it's it's funny because, but like that's the same problem we have with wrestling footage, in that much yes. much like how stuff got wiped in like early British television. That like you know prom- the territorial promoters because of how ex- because again wrestling is you know schlocky pop culture that most of them because they were also cheap re- would just reuse their t- their master tapes every week because who's gonna want to see this stuff again and it's like the few promotions that like you know we still have like the world class library from at least you know, 82 onwards, more or less, you know, Bill Watt, you know, for all of Bill Watts's faults, you know, you up until they sold it to the WWF, you know, you could buy like almost every episode of mid South television from 1981 until 1986. And then since they had the entire library that like Bill Watts's ex-wife and son were able to just sell that to the WWE for five million dollars, which is actually, which is funny because that's more than they actually paid to buy WCW, which included <laughs> the the Jim Crockett tape library and the Florida yeah. library and the Kansas City library. So it's, but and now we have the same problem. It's like there's no money for the WWF to spend the millions of dollars to digitize and upscale all of this old footage to make it useful on the network because according to them nobody on the net, you know people don't watch their network to watch old episodes of mid south you know they watch they watch it now to watch the pay-per-views and then i guess what remains to be seen you know what actually ends up on the network you know when raw goes to netflix or smackdown goes to us you know how that all is going to shake out you know, like what's yeah. what's the like? Are the pay per views still only going to be on the network? So you have to have the network to see to see WrestleMania or the Rumble or whatever. But it's funny you're talking about sort of preserving UK television for the the CBS CBS uh, has this long running Sunday morning show which is like very much designed for like. They're old. It's CBS, so it's designed for the older graphic demographic. So it's like it's very slow. It's kind of like very. It's like the show that Charles Kuralt and Charles Osgood did. You know, we're driving across America and we're. You know, it's it's like 90 minutes of the last segment of the news. You know, the feel good story. Mm-hmm. But CBS Sunday Morning recently did a segment on that talking pictures TV thing. Yes. That you guys them, that yeah. you guys have in UK, which is which is literally like this a mom and pop operation, it's pop and daughter, where they're putting all of these old they're saving like and showing all of these old films and I only know about it <coughs> because I subscribe to certain people on social media who who love tweeting about when certain you know, Danny Kelly is good for that. You know, yes. it'll be like, Hey, there's this you know, and Danny Baker does too. It's like, hey, there's this 1950s like Ealing comedy that nobody has seen for 40 years, and it's on Talking Pictures TV today. 
you know, so, like, I know about it, I can't watch it, but, like, I'm glad that, like, something like that has actually carved out a niche. It, it, it more than a niche, it's become a, I think the pandemic perhaps helped, because people were sort of had a captive audience, and there was a, a, a kind of nostalgia boom a little bit, and then, but it, it was an, it's an amazing bit of work, and as you said, it is, it's just a, basically an old boy and his daughter in their garden shed started, they got a broadcast license, for the sort of very, very top end of the digital spectrum in, in the UK on, on sort of uh, free-to-air television. And they were showing old films on there. And it would be, you know, things like um, uh, Hell Drivers and, you know, old episodes of Megray and stuff like that. Um, my gran, who passed away last year, absolutely loved it because it was stuff that she grew up watching. She watched in the 30s and 40s and 50s. It, it was put together as a schedule with real love for the material. And it was, it wasn't just kind of going into the kind of the obvious kind of old 90s and 1950s detective drama with Stanley Baker or something like that. They were getting stuff from the Southern Archive, like Runabout, um, that's a Runaround. And it was just like, where are they finding this stuff? And they obviously had good connections and they were able to negotiate to get some of the stuff. And some of it, I think, they got off network as well before it went under. And they were they were striking the right deals. They were doing great kind of archaeology of of television and and British cinema and giving it a home. And and the, the sort of the revelation that came from that was people want this stuff. There is an audience for it. It's not just pensioners with nothing else to do there is a kind of partly the kind of the, the tv nerdery community loved seeing this stuff being broadcast but there's stuff from modern ish times you know they had comedies from the 70s and 80s on there and then that's tv which is a horrible um uh, hyper local network that isn't hyper local and is a, basically a scam um they started showing stuff as well. So they were showing um, like the two Ronnies and uh, Sorry and stuff like that. And it, was, it became a kind of tapping into, because there is a kind of slight obsession with in British television about aiming for younger audiences. And I think all major broadcasters are now kind of obsessed with this because they see that as the only way that broadcast networks can continue by plugging into younger audiences and convincing them that, that actually television is still worth bothering about rather than streaming and, and like watching on their phones on YouTube and TikTok. But there is a generation that's kind of been left out of that, that kind of focus who aren't necessarily pensioners, but are, you know, 40 something, 50 somethings who watch this stuff when they were kids. And are like, Oh, that's all brilliant. You know, and stuck on an old episode of Rumpole or uh, an old episode of uh, Fresh Fields or something, because it wasn't, anywhere else they could find it. You know, ITV and the BBC, in terms of, they put stuff on streaming, which has been very good. But in terms of linear broadcast, they are very, very myopic in terms of what gets show, shown. Um, ITV, maybe less so with ITV4, where they, but a lot of it is the same stuff on rotation. So it's Sherlock Holmes or The Professionals or Dempsey and Makepeace or, you know, endless repeats of Midsummer Murder. And there's this kind of cut-off point of anything pre-1980 is not going to appear 
on these channels. And that's where this kind of, that's TV and, and, and especially talking pictures of Manchester fill that gap. And they've done so with no money, really, but with a massive amount of love and respect for the material. And I think that's kind of what's won them this real kind of brownie points from everybody is that you get a sense of the people who are doing it. They're not doing this to be rich. They're doing this because they love the stuff and they want other people to enjoy it. And that's actually something really nice to celebrate. It's lovely that CBS did the, the feature about them. I saw uh, clips of it on YouTube, actually. And it's, it was a kind of nice thing to see that, that um, the hard work they've put in has, has properly been rewarded. It's funny that uh, I guess maybe we're like on the other end of the spectrum. Like we finally now have like almost all the Doctor Who being on the BBC iPlayer. When and it's funny that like it's kind of taken, and again this may be because it's sort of like rights deals and things, but it's funny that at least if you're in the UK, you can finally you finally have one place to watch everything. Although ironically, not the first episode. Due to, yes. due, due to a rights issue, which is funny. But again. Let's, let's, let's call it what it is, Mark. It's not a rights issue. It's because Anthony Coburn's son is an absolute arsehole. And a massive racist. But, Feel free to cut that a bit if you want. But he is. The reason he's blocking it is because he thinks the BBC conned his dad out of money that he should have had, which is bullshit. But also because the BBC is far too woke. And this is what they get for being too woke, is they don't get to show Doctor Who. Which is, it's sort of funny, because it's like, you're saying this is like, the BBC is like, now, too liberal, when you've got Doctor Who, which is like, produced by a woman, and had like, what's, uh, and, and directed by Warish Hussein. So it was a gay Indian immigrant, yeah. Right, so it's like, you know, this show from the very start was not, uh, like, the traditional thing that you would expect it to be. No, absolutely not. I mean, this is the, the irony of it. But I, I, you're right. It's, it's this wonderful thing we've got with, with... And a lot of it, I think, is driven by Bad Wolf. Um, obviously, kind of taking ownership of the Doctor Who brand for the BBC um, as part of the kind of the, 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 the production deal. Um, because the people at Bad Wolf are folk like Russell and Phil Collinson and so on, who obviously worked on, on the new series when it came back, but are also absolute self-confessed card-carrying. I mean, literally, in like Russell and Phil's case, because I think they were members of the Appreciation Society back in the day, but proper card-carrying Doctor Who fans who want to do this properly, who have had this kind of like dream of, look, if we're going to do this, let's make this and Russell's talked about he wanted to have like this kind of Doctor Who universe. We've now got this this universe brand, but as part of that, it was like right, we've got to make everything available, everything in one place, accessible by anybody who wants to dip into the history of Doctor Who. So not just the episodes, but the documentaries, the cartoons, the 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 missing episodes put into context, everything they can get in one specific kind of chapter of iPlayer. And it's a brilliant thing to have because the the thing they've done, I know you and I could have talked about this offline and, and sort of prepared for this, is that they've contextualised it in a way that's not been done before by having everything subtitled, everything with um, uh, sign language, BSL uh, sign language for hard of hearing 
uh, viewers and, and audio description and stuff. To, to have all that, to make the effort to do that for 750-odd episodes of, of old telly is an expensive and challenging process. And the fact that they went, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this properly, shows the commitment they had to it. And then to do things like Tales of the TARDIS and the Daleks in colour was, again, it was about contextualising old bits of Doctor Who for audiences who wouldn't necessarily have ever come to them and, and brought them brought them in, in a brilliant way. Well, it's funny that when we were talking about what we were things to, to do on the show, I realized I had never gotten around to watching those Tales of the TARDIS. One, because I, I didn't know where they were. Uh, luckily, they're all on YouTube now. So yes, <laughs> so uh, these things always are. <laughs> I know, but those are just great because, like, they've got all of the you know they've got. I think there's like five or six of them, and they've they're like sort of paired off by era, where you've got, you know, Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury as Jamie and Zoe talking about being back in the TARDIS, and you have Peter Davison and Janet Fielding and. Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant and and you know sort of like they're they're in character but they're all older and they're and it's yeah. funny how every ep, you know every episode has them making fun of being old you know like I can't believe you're old doc you know Nicola Bryant says to Colin <laughs> Baker I can't believe you're old he's like I'm older and bigger and beardier <laughs> you know so it's it's one of the good things about again having fans in charge, whether it was you know Russell then and now or Moffat, you know, is that like people and you know having you know like having Capaldi actually being the doctor, like one of the you know world's biggest you know fans growing up, that you know the the people who like love and respect the material, that you know they're not. You know that they haven't just decided that yes, we have the rights to all of this, so it's good to freshen up the IP. But but you know, you like an American TV show wouldn't necessarily say we're going to refresh the IP by bringing back all of these 70 and 80 year old actors to reminisce about the show that we just rebooted for young people with, you know, a new younger doctor and a new younger companion. Yeah. But, one, of course, one of the things I said earlier to you was it's amazing how many of these actors are still alive that were on the show in the 60s. It is. It's, it's although increasingly less and less um, as we go along, obviously, we've been, um, uh, lost uh, uh, the Mike Yates, uh, Richard Franklin, just at Christmas there as well. Um so it, it is it is sad that we've, we've lost quite so many. I know I think it was very notable with the the, the Pertwee episode that they had to bring in um, uh, Daniel Anthony that played Clyde in the Sarah Jane Adventures to do it because you you really got to run out of anyone from the the Pertwee era now that you could put into that and, and work with with um, with Katie to kind of give her a foil to talk to about the 
the, the, the third Doctor's adventure. So it's like, well, who have we got? Well, he may in case he wants an adventure. That'll do. We'll bring in Clyde. That'll, that'll fill that gap. I, I was trying to but think... I was trying to think the only other thing I guess they could have done was to use the Brigadier's daughter and sort of do some hand-waving and say, like, she probably remembers meeting, you know, like, maybe... Yeah. You know, like, maybe when she was, like, a little girl, she may have, like, met her once or something. Like, you could do... I think you could get away with some hand-waving and people wouldn't mind. But yeah, but the, the the thing it's done, like I said, the, the incredible thing it's done is it's it's not just about you said about refreshing the IP. It's about contextualizing stuff. For well, and I think that's that's been the great sort of genius of what Russell's done with this. Is it? It's it's about um, realizing the commercial value of of what they've got and not just sort of sticking it up. But it's like, well, how do we make this work for a younger audience? You look at the stories that they've picked. They are, particularly like Curse of Fenric and Earthshock, they are very emotional stories. There are, they're stories that have a resonance. Obviously, Earthshock, there's a big catastrophic ending and a sad ending. And the, the, the bridging material around it with Peter and Janet is about them confronting their emotions. With, with Fenric, it's about, um, sort of the, the, the Doctor and Ace dealing with the history that's kind of been developed on the show under Chibnall about, Ace leaving under a cloud and stuff. But again, also, you know, Fenric is an incredibly emotional and, and, and powerful story. You know, you could easily... And the fact that they had the, the Blu-ray version of that with the updated special effects means that feels like it could air today on BBC4 and no one would blink. It has that kind of um, contemporary feel to it. And doing that again with the Daleks and Colour, where you take uh, a seven-part... And let's be generous slow Terry Nation script and bring it down to a very tight 70 minutes um, in colour with modern editing and modern music and upping the pace um, cutting all fat out of it um, well, yeah, so you end up with something where you, t- you take something and really contextualise it to a way that an audience now who are used to different storytelling techniques can watch it and understand it and younger audiences in particular I think that's the thing that Russell's tried to do with that is to make to find the emotion in the stories that they've done either through the bridging material or the stories they've picked and use that because that has a, a resonance for audiences that wouldn't necessarily watch Doctor, particularly younger audiences who want to kind of engage with the material. Well, I know you watch some of the classic episodes, especially like if it's like a six-parter and you're like especially the way we watch them where I live in PBS which is at, which were a single episode. Like, it wasn't until, like, I was watching this show for, like, three or four years, and we happened to be somewhere on vacation, and the PBS station there was showing them uh, individually. Like, I had never seen, like, a half-hour episode before. Like, I had only seen, like, episodes that were, like, an hour and a half long or whatever they were. Yeah. And, like, buses, yeah. and when you watch them, it's like, especially now, it's like, so, in a six-part episode, the companion was captured, managed to get captured, <laughs> escape, get captured again, escape again, <clears throat> and maybe get captured a third time, depending on how many episodes there were. And you're just like, you know, that's, it's kind of like one of the reasons I sort of like the Davison epi- era is that you had a lot more shorter episodes, where 
Yeah. Some of the padding was was cut out, and yeah, you watch some of the, especially some of the black and white episodes, and you're just like, boy, this. I mean, again, considering this is sort of like a science fiction soap opera that always ends in a cliffhanger. Which again is funny when you watch the omnibus episodes because it's like you just jump right to it and you're like, well, we really didn't need a cliffhanger here. It was just like, oh, is the doctor going to fall off the cliff? And then you come back the next week and it's like, oh no, there's a cliff right underneath him, so he just dropped down. You know, in, in the whichever quarry they happen to be filming in that day. <laughs> but it, the, it creates an interesting thought experiment as well by doing these and. and I, it's focus started doing it with streaming dramas that because you know this ridiculous thing of streaming dramas being sort of ten episodes and and so on where you, they're taking the material and cutting. There was, I saw a fantastic version that was done um, of the Obi Wan series from Disney Plus where someone had cut that down to two hours and I think ten minutes. So basically, they shaved about two thirds of the running time out of it, and it became this fantastic taut brilliantly paced Star Wars film. Um, and you kind of look at that and go, there is there is an exercise to be done in brevity, I think. We've lost some of that with the 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 way that modern television, this peak era television has gone. And and some of that I think has worked with like the Daleks and Colour in particular in, in in taking all of that padding and all of that, well this has got to run for seven episodes because we're commissioned to run for 40 weeks and we need to fill seven weeks of that as opposed to now which is like we've got a job to do with this which is we've got to do this in 70 minutes uh, there's a lot of things you can do that to. I mean I would, I would love to see them do more TARDIS tales I think you can be quite brutal with some old Doctor Who's and cut vast swathes of them out to, to make and it will be saying sacrilege to some people to do it, but you would make some really, really tight bits of television by doing like the war games. I love the war games, but there's there's four episodes of that you could comfortably lose and nobody would notice. You know, out of ten of them, um, you know, and, and quite a lot of those per three seven parters you could quite happily lose big chunks out of. Uh, but I think if you do that, what you do again is you contextualise it for an audience that wouldn't necessarily sit through, you know, four episodes of of a 1980s uh, TV drama shot on on film and VT. But if you you bridge it and you have it tight and you you sort of get rid of some of the fat and make and focus on the the things that matter, like emotion and character, for this kind of modern storytelling audience, you you can you can get them to watch the archive material that they wouldn't necessarily touch. And I think that's that's been the genius of what they did. I'd love to see them do it with more. I, I also think it's a way in for bridging some of the gaps with missing episodes or missing bits of story. The one I, I, I will be shocked if they don't do any more, uh, if, if they do, sorry, if they do more, I'll be shocked if they don't do something with McGann because that lets them fill a lot of gaps by having Paul come in and do a, uh, a sort of Tales of the Tardis version of the TV movie. Even if you bring in one of the big Finnish actors, you know, like bring in Nicola Walker or Sheridan Smith, who've always said they wouldn't do television Doctor Who because it was, you know, it's a commitment for a couple of months and it's, you know, audio only takes them a day. Well, if you only turn up for half a day to film on set, one set to do 
a bit of narration at the start and end, you could get a Nicola Walker or a, a Sheridan Swift to come in and do that. And that, that kind of canonizes that era of Doctor Who as well. I was going to say, because now that we had the, I forget when, but we've had the precedent of like big finish stuff being like mentioned on the television show. Yeah. You know, so that I think they may have done it with the comics too. Where Oh yeah. The the, the whole of, of Doctor Who has been canonized at various points. Absalom Dak pops up in a uh the Time Heist one. Uh Night of the Doctor McGann mentions all these big Finnish companions. There's been kind of allusions to stuff from the new adventures in, in the early Eccleston stories. Just basically because it's what happens when you let nerds run it. You know, they take over the asylum. And the funny thing about those Tales from the TARDIS episodes is, like I said, I think I watched all of them today, is that there isn't one for for Tom Baker. Because, again, you kind of have a... Like, I don't... I guess Louise Jameson is still alive. Mm-hmm. But... I'm not sure who else is still alive that would have. I mean, yeah, the only other one you could realistically do something with um, would be Lala, and I'm not sure putting Lala and Tom in a room together is possible. But I'm not. But I'm not saying you would necessarily use Tom because I don't know. If, but I mean, if you just had, I, I don't think Tom physically could do it at the no. moment either. I mean, he is very much his age, and he's ninety odd now, and he shows it, you know. But it's. But and not to take not to say that you can't, but I noticed too that I had never seen before today. I think that companion support group short that they did <laughs> because because William Russell's in that and he's I think ninety eight or ninety nine now. Yeah, which is just amazing. Yeah. yeah, when I saw that there was no fourth Doctor, I was then I started thinking, and I guess you could. I guess you could fudge it, and you could have used Janet Fielding with for the for the fourth Doctor, and then yeah, used I mean, a, you could do it. I mean, the I guess other you, option would be to do it with Canine. Yeah, that was that was have, the other that was know. because that also because if you use Canine, that's kind of means you could also have a surrogate for Sarah Jane. Yeah, yeah. but. Uh, but, yeah, um, but I would say I think, I think the problem with Tom as well is that what one do you do? Because the ob- if if you kind of when you look at the stories that they did, that obviously they're emotional ones, but also kind of big hitters of Fenric and Shatterhawk and um, Mind Robber and stuff like that. It, it, I mean, with Tom, there's so many to pick. But I mean, if you go for the obvious one, it's something like City of Death. Um, you know, is that a, is that a story that benefits from? being contextualized like that. City of Death actually probably works best on its own. So I don't know what you kind of I was you know, I was just, I was, I was just running through my head and assuming you don't if you don't necessarily want to do like a super serious one, like you know, you don't necessarily want to do Genesis of the Daleks. But like maybe no. like maybe something like Fang Rock or Morbius where because it's that era where they were doing Doctor Who versions of X genre, mm-hmm. that you know that those are both sort of horror movie, monster movie kind of things. That you know, Mobius is. I mean, plus Mobius is a great episode. We mentioned Philip Maydock before. You know that you can relate. It's like, oh, this is Doctor Who doing Frankenstein. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a one-line pitch. You don't have to... It's not like, say, you're doing the Sunmakers and you're trying to explain this is all a satire <laughs> of, the British, of the British tax system. Yeah, this this is what happens when your rights are against a huge tax bill. Um, that's not a bad show. Actually, Fine Rock's not necessarily a bad show because it's on the new Blu-ray and it's been spruced up and given new special effects. So that's That might be something that they're looking at doing if they do more of them. Wouldn't surprise me if they're going to take that out the way they did with Fenric. But again, it's 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 a contextualization. Who do you have? The problem with with Tom is, you know, anyone before Louise Jameson, you don't have a companion that's contemporaneous because they've all passed. And you know, Mary Tam has passed, so you can't do Keith Time. And Lala lives, I think she lives in France now, or she lives abroad, which makes it kind of hard for availability. Um. But also, if you did something with her and Tom, you literally can't have them in the same room together. So that's, that makes it quite hard. So there's a, there's a challenge there, I think, I would, Tom's stuff. What, what could be interesting is, I certainly don't know this off the top of my head, but if you looked at who all the guest stars were in episodes with Leela, then... You know, if if there's somebody sort of a quote-unquote enough recognizable name that was a guest star, you know, that you could, you know, or like, is the actor still alive who, like, plays her love interest in the episode where she decides to stay on Gallifrey? You know, whoever that guy is. No, he he passed away quite recently, actually. Okay, well, there you go. But I was just trying to... <laughs> this is, we were trying to work this out, actually, at Christmas, a friend of mine sent me a quiz. And I was trying to work out the first um, Doctor Who episode where the entire cast is still alive. And you're deep, deep into Tom era uh, before that's possible now, sadly. Which is a sign of the times, you know, we're 50 years from from Tom uh, debuting. So it's a sign of the times that we've got to that point where it's no great surprise that, sadly, you know, the cast has been whittled down and whittled down. Which is why I'm. Which is why I was like, it's amazing that you still have companions from the first and second era that are absolutely that are still alive, and you know, and that are still like active in the in the community. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they still do, but I mean, as of a couple of years ago, like Fraser Hines and Winnie Padbury were still doing conventions over here. Mm-hmm. You know Fraser what I mean? was alive, I think, until very recently. He was um he was he was ill quite. Quite recently, I, I, he wasn't well, but he was—he's in a, a, a film that came out a couple of Christmases ago. Um, that was done by a, a guy who, who directed a Scottish guy who directed a Doctor Who fan film, and has got into making proper movies. But he's obviously still a big Doctor Who fan, and the film starred um, the cast, two of the actors from his fan film, but the supporting cast included. Caitlin Blackwood, obviously Baby, um, Amy Pond, Sylvester McCoy, and Fraser Hines. So it was like we can you can kind of spot what's going on here, you know. Definitely. Before we go, I want to make sure that we have the chance to talk about your magazine. Uh, so it's it's called From the Sublime, um, which last time I was on, we were talking about when it was back via podcast. It has has gone through various incarnations over the years, but. It came about last year. Um, I was just kind of uh, 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 an itch to scratch to do some writing. It was kind of non, 
sports, non-work related. Um, and I didn't want to get into podcasting again. I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to write sort of online. And a friend said, well, why don't you do a zine? And I kind of thought about it. And, and you know, back in the day, I used to work for SFX magazine. Uh, I used to, to work for City Life in Manchester. So I kind of had a bit of a magazine background. And I thought, yeah, do you know what? Let's let's do it. There's a kind of gap in the market for a good, I'd say it was terrible to say a good pop culture magazine. But when you look at like SFX and stuff now, it does feel like they're they're not kind of, like a lot of magazines of that era, they, they've lost a lot of investment and kind of been whittled away a little bit in terms of, of what made them great. Um, and it is a bit of a throwback in terms of kind of the nostalgia side of it, not just in terms of the content, but my kind of, because I grew up reading great mags in the 90s, the stuff I used to love was stuff like Neon and Deluxe and these kind of magazines that were stuff. They weren't you know, Deluxe is a great example. It was nominally a lads mag, but it absolutely wasn't a lads mag in the 90s. It was a magazine that, that could quite, you know, its first um, uh, pin-up girl, if you like, was Tori Amos, which is about as far away from your kind of, you know, Gillian Anderson with her baps out on the front of FHM type cover as you could get. Uh, and it had, you know, big deep dives into things like Hunter S. Thompson going to the Highland Games, which was a catastrophic failure um the the sitcom babes in the wood and what went horribly wrong there it was really interesting features and i wanted to try and recreate that sense and also from sublime itself was a fanzine when i was a kid in aberdeen um that covered and it was an old school photocopy day four fanzine it covered the same kind of stuff it was you know a, a kind of smorgasbord of pop culture um, and I, I wanted to try and recapture that sense of you turn the page, you're never quite sure what the next feature is going to be about, other than pop culture is an incredibly broad charge. So, you know, we've covered everything in, in the mag. We're issue three, which is issue two, but is our third issue because it's quite complicated. We have an issue zero. Um, it came out uh, just before Christmas. We've covered everything in in our first year from um, the kind of the football kits to fetish models, board games to um, the Babylon Zoo, um, the kind of great forgotten comedians of the the Edinburgh Fringe to rediscovering lost comic books of British publishing in the nineteen seventies. There's a kind of vein of um, uh, entertainment in there. There's a lot of film and TV stuff, but we've got, you know, games and books and uh, comics, football features quite regularly. The current issue has a, a big deep dive into the sort of world of retro kit culture and what that means. Again, I'm trying to contextualise it, like interviews with Match Winner, or look at the, the caribous of... Colorado, for those who know their NASL, and the weirdest football kit of all time, because it had a 10-inch fringe on the front of it. Um, my, my, my friend Alan Boone wrote this amazing feature about it, which um, it's the if you ever see pictures of it, it's the most ridiculous idea. It looks like a cowboy shirt with like the fringing on it, but every time players ran by somebody, the opposition would just grab the fringe and hold them back. 
Um, and when they went up for corners, the fringe would whip them in the eye. So they very quickly, the players were taking scissors to their own kits to try and re- reduce that to, to something that was slightly less injuring them. Um, so we're trying to basically create a, a, a magazine that is broad enough that it's not just kind of your bog standard film and telly nerdery. It's not kind of SFX or Dreamwatch or stuff like that. It's got a very broad sweep, but also that there's going to be something in there for everyone that that you'll find a little bit of weirdness in there. Like the current issue's got a history of pogs, um, which isn't kind of the kind of traditional, uh, yeah, do you remember pogs type thing? It's written by a brilliant stand-up comedian from from uh, Glasgow called Rob Ringham, and it's into like the history of of uh, how these things were created in Hawaii from bottle tops and what they represented and the sort of the culture behind them and then how that became a commercial thing and so on. Um, so we tried to kind of create a kind of very weird, slightly skewed deep dive into some of the more esoteric bits of pop culture. That was a very long way of saying buy my magazine, wasn't it? Well, that was kind of how my magazine was, at least in the beginning, where, I mean, it's always just been what I sort of am interested in. So there's like, obviously, there's like certain things that just were never in the magazine because I don't care. It wasn't my area of interest or study. So like, you know, the first couple issues, it was like film and TV, but also comics and wrestling and I forget what else was like. Oh, and and like sports and sports talk radio and television and stuff like that. And then eventually, like the last couple were like sort of mainly wrestling only. Because like the one I designed around the, basically around like the one sort of CML show that a bunch of my friends were going to. So like we designed it around there and then they took some copies with them to give to the guys that were there, which is why I, uh, we mentioned we were talking about this uh, before we started, but why one of my the issue that I have that has my character Doctor Alchemia with Hechicero, we have I have a picture of Hechicero holding that issue of the magazine. That that will be by the time people listen to this, they may have seen him on TNT or TBS wrestling this week. Uh, don't know who he's wrestling, but supposedly he's wrestling this week. Uh, probably in theory, it'd be perfect to wrestle Brian Danielson, but who knows. Um, and then, like the like the last issue that we did, although it was like eight years ago, was there was a one of the independent shows up in Pennsylvania had brought a bunch of luchadors in. Um, mm. The Puma King came in, and Felino, I think it was Puma King and Felino were on that show. I think Puma King and Tiger were supposed to come, but Tiger didn't. And then, so like we did an issue about those guys and like gave me an excuse to write about Negro Casas because he's related to them and Negro Casas is like the you know greatest luchador ever in some quarters including mine so but like I haven't done anything since then because and like you said it's my problem has kind of been a lot of the energy that I used to use for writing goes into the podcast mm-hmm. because it's kind of like cuz we're talking about maybe doing some sort of like comic deep dive spinoff podcast you know kind of like what Paul and I are doing with their Thunderbolt show but 
and it's like a, a book that like I'm I was long familiar with and have written about before a couple of different times, but I'm just like, you know, it's the kind of thing where if I think about how much energy it would take to do all the research, to write <laughs> to write it, or I could do the research and just do like a half an hour podcast, you know. So it's like, what's what's your time and energy like now? And it was, I mean, we have been talking about. I was thinking about now that they're like on demand printing is so much easier than it used to be. Of mm-hmm. like doing like a best of like the six issues of the magazines, mainly with like all you know, like the various interviews. Like, like the first issue has like an interview with Greg Rucka back when he was writing Detective. Like, that's I mean, that's from like 2000, you know what I mean? Or, or, um, I'm trying to. You know, like I've, like it, it's a, like a lot of like the people that I'm still friends with online that work in comics. Like I've interviewed, but and then like when I used to do like the newsletter for the comic shop, it's like you know, I, I would talk to like Mark Wade and Kurt Busick and you know Carl Castle, like people I've had on the pod now. <clears throat> but it's like you know I probably still have all of that that stuff somewhere. My biggest problem, and you could probably relate to this. My biggest problem is the magazine is now so old that when I worked on it, all the files are on zip drives. <laughs> now, oh, I, yes. yeah. now, I do have a zip drive that has a USB on it, so I can still use it. <coughs> but it's finding it. But the funny thing is, and you can probably relate to this, Dude, having just done these new issues, when I tried to do those two newer issues a couple like well, a couple years ago, like eight, it had been so long since I had done an issue of the magazine that I got the new version of Microsoft Publisher, which is like 2015, 2014, something like that, and it had advanced so much in like the five or six years since I used it. And I was kind of doing this on a short deadline that I couldn't figure out how to use it. So I actually reinstalled Publisher 97 <laughs> on my computer because, oh my word. because I knew how to use it. So I could do it and big bam boom and I got it done in a week. <clears throat> Whereas if I was trying to use like this newfangled technology, Ed, like it would take me like a month to try and figure out how do I insert the pictures and how do I crop them and how do I, yeah, like there's like so many choices I was overwhelmed. Yeah. But I'm like, I, know how to I, do this. I had a, I had exactly this with um, uh, the issue before Christmas that came out because uh, Apple, well, the, the owners of, of uh, Pixelmator in their infinite wisdom, I was I had Pixelmator and Pixelmator Pro, but I only used Pixelmator because I hated Pro, and they deprecated. Pixelmator, I put everything into Pro, so it stopped working. And I was just like, yeah, I don't have much hair, but I was tearing what little I had left out, going, why have you done this to me? I'm trying to lay this sodding thing out. Trying to tell the art upscaled and everything ready, and suddenly none of the files worked. And I was just going around the bends trying to fix it. So I entirely sympathize with that. It's definitely, it's, 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 yeah, so I so I don't know if I'm going to 
try and do this best of thing and do on demand or not. I was like, I've been thinking about it, but I'm just like, boy, this is going to be a lot of work. And it's like, is it really going to, it's like, is the reward really going to be worth the effort? And I don't know. And I'm just like, then I'm just like, again, I can just do a podcast. It's like, you know, it's like I did a couple of days of research. I told you what we were going to talk about and we've nicely killed two hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah, if I was writing, I'd still be writing whatever we've been talking about. So I think the thing for me is because I did obviously did my my time the podcasting trenches uh, as as well. You know, you are uh, a contributor to the the old podcast as well. Um, the hassle for me was just that it, I I really enjoyed doing it, but the amount of production that we used to put into it in terms of the way it was structured and, and the work done to to edit and distribute and, and, and kind of tighten up and drop in clips and so on. It was becoming a grind. And I found, you know, I come from a print background originally. I started as a print journalist when I was 18. I found getting back to doing this and being able to indulge a little bit, scratch an itch a little bit of, of writing stuff that I couldn't write elsewhere. Like, I couldn't write in the day job. I couldn't write for, like, on commission. The fact that I can sit and, and do, because uh, I'm freelance now, go and spend, like, a week in the, the Mitchell Library in Glasgow researching the history of the Buck Rogers Burger Station, uh, which is a feature in the current issue, which is this insane point in in, in uh, Glasgow in the, the early 80s when they licensed the Buck Rogers TV series to create a burger bar. Um, and it, it's become this kind of mythical thing because there's hardly any photos and video of it from the time. So it's the kind of, if you're of a certain age in Glasgow, it's this really kind of mythical cult thing that everyone remembers, but there's hardly any evidence of. So being able to do a proper deep dive to go into the newspaper archives, to go into the, the architectural plans and find all that, that's stuff that you couldn't do in a podcast. But to have that material there and be able to kind of weave this whole story, this narrative around what happened, that's been the thing I've really loved doing, you know? Now, I have to ask this question. Did they have a hawk sandwich that was really just chicken? <laughs> they, had, they had the kind of stereotypical... I'll, say, I'll find the menu and send you it so you can put... I'll, or I'll stick it up on Blue Sky and you can see it. It's... um. It was kind of just your kind of bog standard stereotypical fare, but what they did was they licensed some of the costumes um, and like memorabilia from the show, um, and and it was it was the first kind of burger bar in in Glasgow. There wasn't really a kind of because McDonald's didn't come to Scotland until the late eighties, um, so there wasn't a kind of that fast food culture in the same way. It was all kind of fish and chips and curry. Um, so they, to do this, they kind of really went for it. Except, obviously, there was no money, and it's Buck Rogers, which by that point had been cancelled. So they were doing this dead show, um, which they had costumes, which they were filling with Glaswegian actors who weren't interested in doing the voices. So famously, the, the guy that was tweaky was a, a, a little person from the Milton, which is a kind of Celtic Parkway, but East End of Glasgow way. Who would wander around going up to kids and rather sort of doing the bitty 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 bit, he would sort of go and go, You're right, pal, in the most kind of broad, rough Glaswegian accent possible. Which completely shatters the illusion that you're you're in the twenty fifth century. 
but it's it's just this kind of weird bit of ephemera that that exists and and um you know to be able to kind of uncover the the history of that properly as someone who went to it for my fifth birthday i had this obsession with it for years um or like you know the the in our, our first issue alan Boone did a, an amazing deep dive into sort of the origins of of mls and the kind of the battle between the competing leagues in the states to get um recognition for what would be the first you know the new league post usa 94 world cup which is an, again like amazing kind of deep dive into a subject that really hasn't been covered in any real depth certainly this side of the atlantic but this kind of really nice to contextualize where we are with with the 2026 20, world cup coming up now here's here's the here's an idea i won't call it a pitch but uh we were talking about You're welcome to pitch. You're always welcome to pitch, Mark. The uh, the beginning of MLS, which is funny because some of the horrible names of the teams early <laughs> early on, the ones that weren't that weren't ones that weren't recycled from the NASL or the MASL, yeah. which yeah. is which is a, I mean because I come from one of the parts of the country where indoor soccer was a big thing, Baltimore. Baltimore had like one of the powerhouses in the league, so. Indeed. But I think what would be an interesting... as as a Sounders fan, obviously, you know, a long long standing Sounders fan, um, who have been through so many different incarnations in different leagues with the same name. So yes, I, it's absolutely agree. But what I think what would be interesting is sort of the whole, um, what I call, uh, football cosplay in the United States. Where mm-hmm. you know you went from being the Kansas City Wiz and you know um, the New England Revolution and the Seattle Sanders, where now everything has to be like F- Chicago Fire became like FC Chicago, like everything is like FC. Yeah. And there's all this like co- I always I call it cosplay or like and especially the demographic of a certain kind of fan here that's all sort of like this yuppie upper west side New York scarf wearing like people that work in like the book business that mm-hmm. you know are Arsenal fans and wear Arsenal scarves and it, it like I don't want to call them plastic because I think they really are but I think there's a certain segment of the fan base that I think are trying to cosplay as English soccer fans for like, and then, and that includes for a while when you would have, I think, I don't know if this is true of anywhere else other than maybe with the Red Bull and New York city, where you actually kind of have people that kind of want to cosplay hooliganism. Like, yeah, I remember that kicked off a couple of years ago. That was pretty embarrassing, to be honest. But I mean, I'll say at least as a Sounders fan, and having been to Sounders games against Portland, there is a proper rivalry that they, they and with Vancouver as well, but especially with Portland, it goes back many years. No. And there are sections of the fan base that properly can hate each other, which is quite nice. Right, it feels like real, real support, you know. And I'm, but there's, like I said, I mean, America is so big and so diverse that when you say soccer fans. You have New York elite book publishing, like Arsenal fans, and then you yeah. have like, like millions and millions of like 
Latin American fans who could care less about MLS. The ones yeah, that like the MX and, and Spain, and, you know, South America. The ones were like when like when Chivas come to the United States for an exhibition game and they put a hundred thousand people in Texas Stadium. Yeah. You know what I mean? Those are people who couldn't tell you who's in MLS because they don't care. You know, which is why they, you know, they tried Chivas USA, which didn't really work. No. You know, and again, there's a, but I think that, I remember thinking, the first, the one I saw this really bad, and I hope I, I, this may be not the kind of thing of like hating what you are, but like, I went to the first Men in Blazers convention, because (laughs) I was, I was, I was in a lot more regular communication with them back then, and it was just, that's, I just got this feeling it was all like, especially because it was in New York, it just seemed like it was like 95% like late 20s, early 30s, white guys with a certain kind of haircut, all wearing like Chelsea and Arsenal jerseys. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like Liverpool had like fallen, that was the time when they had like fallen out of favor, so they weren't really hot. And like, I don't know if if Abu Dhabi had even had bought City yet. Like I, I, I'd have to actually think of like the timeline of all this stuff. But it seemed like, but then you also had like your fifty-year-old guys who were there wearing Cosmos jerseys that they may have actually bought when the Cosmos were playing. <laughs> I mean, I'm old. I mean, I. I don't know if I ever went to an NASL game either in Philadelphia or Washington. I'd have to think about it. But, I mean, I certainly watched the Cosmos play on TV when I was a kid. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I am I am that old. You know what I mean? And I, would, I remember the expansion. It's like I still have, you know, NASL cards and stickers when they, you know, like when they just like, you know, they made baseball. For us, they made baseball cards for briefly for like maybe like a year or two for for – the NASL, and then we got to the point when they started moving around. It was this is a really a, a concept that's sort of foreign for like English football, but like teams were moving around, but not changing their names. So you yeah. had so like you had like the New England T-Men, whose logo was like a big 17th century schooner, and then they like moved to say like Salt Lake. But they were still like the Salt Lake T-Men and had the same <laughs> le- because the league was so poor they couldn't afford to like change their logos or yeah. or, or new, yeah. get new kits. But yeah, I think American soccer culture is like a really interesting thing when you like dig below the surface. Oh, totally. I, I, me and a pal have talked for years, and I think the timings unfortunately just never quite worked out. We would love to do a proper road trip around the USL. Um, just because I mean that once you're into that grassroots level, you're outside sort of MLS structures. Obviously, it's it's a different type of fan. It is your kind of your lower league, grumpy, diehard that goes home and away. And the fact that you've got folk who are doing home and away trips from like Tacoma to Dallas to go and watch, um, you know, to go to find playing in front of like 500 people. Um, you know, it's, there's something fascinating about that kind of subculture 
that that really that's the kind of thing I would love to dig into. And we've talked about maybe doing something with that kind of uh, exposure once you get outside the kind of the glitz and glamour of of the MLS and all the kind of the money and, and the TV deal with Apple and all that kind of stuff. What is there? in terms of, of soccer culture and that seems to be where it really is and you get all the kind of the weird quirky shit like um who is it? is it birmingham where they smell a an iron ingot every time there's a goal scored rather than do the kind of portland timbers cut a bit of wood off which i think is fascinating you've got someone with a small furnace sitting off the side of the field casting iron for the goal scorer it's like what am i meant to do with this you just think it's my mantelpiece Go up if you get a hat trick. You need to reinforce your mantelpiece to put them all up. That, I don't know, but that would make sense because, like, when Alabama and Auburn play, I don't know if it's still true because I think they actually do home and away now. But it used to be because because it's a proper it's a proper derby, and I always say college football. Yeah. I always say college football is the closest thing that we have in American sports to like tradition like english football rivalries yeah because yeah, because they're usually hyper local and people are crazy like again you know if you know the story about the the guy who killed the trees in alabama you know no uh, who's this uh i'll uh let me finish what i was talking about not to explain so anyway so alabama and auburn play each other every year and that's an interstate rivalry but they would play in the middle of the state, so they would play in Birmingham. But it's called. The, uh, okay. But it's called the Iron Bowl. So I'm not. I'd have to talk to Carl Stern, who lives in Alabama, about. But like, so Alabama, like being a steel thing, or Birmingham being a steel thing, wouldn't surprise me. No, the 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 deal with the trees is I I may have this. I always get this backwards. But so at at one at either Alabama or Auburn, there's like a famous place on campus that has these like hundred year old trees or whatever. That's like uh, like easily identifiable with the campus. Well, there was somebody who was a fan of the other team went to the other campus and poisoned the trees. No, oh my word. So that's um, that's proper hardcore. <laughs> that's sort of like oh, love it. Alabama explains why he poisoned Auburn oak trees. So there you go. Oh, oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. I wanted Auburn people to hate me as much as I hate them. <laughs> that's the pull quote for the article. Oh, that's yeah, that's that's a proper rivalry then. That's phenomenal. And then you, st- you know, and a lot of it is a lot of times it's also like state school versus private school. So you've got all these class things where you can sort of see them, you know, like how it mirrors, you know, certain derbies. Yeah, where... it's, it's pr- I was yeah, it very much feels like a kind of city derby then over in, in, in the the English league. I mean, like, because we used to have, I mean, this was a rivalry, not a derby, but, like, when Notre Dame and Miami were, like, the two big colleges in the in the 80s, um, the, people, people started eventually calling their games Catholics versus convicts, 
Which is, I guess, as close as we would get to the old firm, probably. I'm, I'm, I'm not even touching that one while barred full. <laughs> That's too much trouble to even to even comment on that one. <laughs> no, no, the guy, the guy from America is making the joke about the old firm, not the guy living yeah, I, miles away from one, pull- one or two of the parks. I, well, I literally live next to Hamden in Glasgow now, so I, I, I'm literally a two-minute walk from Hamden Park, which is great if I'm going to watch Thistle play Queen's Park, but a bit of crap if I'm going to watch Thistle play anyone else. Uh, although great for when Scotland play as well, which is lovely, So and get a great vibe around here when that happens. So. Definitely. So everybody definitely pick up uh, the, when's the you say well, you're working on the new issue right now, correct? Like yes. So so issue two is available now. Uh, issue three will be available at the end of March. There is also a best of issue which you can buy in the shop, but we're also going to make it available as a free download as a taster version for people to to access as well. The best slightly lower res version, obviously, than than it is in print. Uh, but you can get them all from from the sublime.com where you'll find the shop. And for your listeners, Mark, if they use the uh, code Winter Palace at checkout, they will get 15% off anything they buy. Great. I will make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Um, do you want to plug your social? I know you like uh, many people I, I know. I, are on... I try not to have a social presence anymore. I mean, I have it basically out of obligation. Um, I'm on Blue Sky. From a Sublime exists as, as a Blue Sky account and an Instagram account. We're on Facebook. Um, you can just search for From the Sublime. But, I mean, generally, we just try not to post anything on all the kind of stuff to plug the magazine and a bit of kind of random birthday card pics. I was saying, so, you, were, um, do <laughs> you, were, you were years ahead of the curve of getting off Twitter. It was like I just oh, remember, I just remember one day it was suddenly place. like I think I went to send you something and it was like Nope He's gone, gone. <laughs> burned it and didn't even to, to your credit you did not do a vanity I'm quitting Twitter blah 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 it was just one day you were gone. It has been a useful learning exercise because we did kind of find we we closed the FTS Twitter account just before um, the, the last issue came out, which is amazing timing, obviously. Um, and we did notice it impacted in kind of like people's awareness of it, which is, it does still, there's obviously still people who use Twitter for that. But, um, you know, when you go on there, it is an absolute binfire of a place. So, you know, please don't, please come to Blue Sky or somewhere else, or, you know, just use Discord or write a letter. Um, Someone actually sent me fan mail for the mag. Proper fan mail. That was lovely. It was like being in 1955. It was, it was wonderful. So, um, you know, please use use traditional snail mail methods to get hold of us because we are a print product. We're very much an analog product as much as possible. So um, that's how to find it. Honestly, as we have established on this podcast, we are both pro-physical media. So people, Absolutely. Pe- people should definitely uh, pick up a copy. Uh, thanks again, Ian, for doing the show. Hopefully it will not be nine years uh, until you're back on and we have something to talk about. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Um, like I said, we may or may not be doing something new in the podcast realm in the near future. I st- we're still working on it. Um, but we will have an episode of The Plot coming probably soon. There's been some stuff I've been watching 
uh, online that I do have the itch to talk about. So that should be coming up in the near future. The other one may or may not be coming in the future, but everybody, thanks for listening. We will talk to everyone next time. Thank you.